0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, everyone. Welcome to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch, just one-fifth of the current co hostry at OnScript, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. Thanks for tuning in. Today we launch into a two-part series on Paul and gender, looking in particular at 1 Corinthians 11, which is a passage that deals with male headship, depending on how you translate kephale, the Greek word that's often translated head, and it also deals with head coverings, uh, female head coverings in particular. So there there are a couple reasons why we've chosen to look at this passage. First of all, it's... It's a uh, it's an interesting theological passage, and it links theology and gender in a way that uh, few other texts do. And it but it does so in a in a complicated way. And this, this is one of the reasons why it makes why it's troublesome and contentious. And uh, so I'll read to you from First Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. So this poses a major challenge and one that the church fathers keenly recognized, uh, namely that whatever the precise relationship between these pairs that paul links the the link between them must be indirect because if you make the link between them in in uh, direct, then you run into major theological problems so I'll explain what I mean so Paul says um, there's some connection between Christ the head of man. Man, the head of woman, and God, the head of Christ. Okay, so imagine those relationships. And um, if you make those relationships simple, you run into the idea that just as apparently Paul thinks the woman is under the headship of her husband, so Christ is under the headship of God the Father. And if you do that, you can run into the the heresy of subordination, eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. And you know, for Orthodox Christians, that's something that we'd want to avoid. Not everyone's going to think that same way, but at least it's important to know the issues at at stake. And, and this gets at another point too in in this discussion of First Corinthians eleven that often gets skimmed over, both in. Uh, complementarian and egalitarian readings of the text, so in different ways. Um, so, Paul seems to deny women the status of image-bearer. So, he says this in verse, uh, I think it's verse 7. He says, A man shouldn't have his head covering because he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is man's glory. So, she's the image and glo- he, he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is man's glory. So, Paul seems to be saying that any glory she has comes through the man. And the man has a kind of direct relationship with God that the woman doesn't have. And that causes a number of problems, uh, one of which seems to be a misreading of Genesis 1, where it says that male and female are made in the image of God, and not just man and then woman, you know, in the image of man. Um, But that seems to be what Paul's saying here. So, However you interpret this passage, you have to deal with the fact that Paul is grounding his argument in the very order of creation. And he's not just saying, hey, um, you know, it's offensive in Corinth. They get the wrong idea if women pray with their heads uncovered. So could you just cover up here uh, for the locals? No, he doesn't say that. He says, this is something that, that's in the very fabric of creation. And for that reason, women need to cover up. Okay. So that's two issues. The third one is the question, which is toward which order of creation should we think about gender? The primordial original creation as it was, or the order toward which creation is moving? So the eschaton, the future. So for Paul, primordial creation and eschatological new creation are not, they don't look the same. So there's continuity between them, there's discontinuity. And so when you think about gender, toward which pole should you orient your thinking about gender? And um, sometimes Paul seems to be orienting toward one and sometimes toward the other, and negotiating that cosmological question is uh, certainly something that needs to be wrestled with. So you can see how Paul's cosmology is an open question in this whole discussion. So now Michael Lakey and Lucy are both going to address this problem from different angles, but they're both keenly aware of those theological questions. And that's why I, I think we need to listen to them. They don't just make a cultural argument um, that this is just something in Corinth that if we can get our heads around Corinth and what it meant there, then we'll we'll be able to solve this. No, this is, Paul's making a deeper, deeper argument. Well, let's get on to the episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael Lakey. And uh, there's a there's a lot of technical language in this discussion, but I I hope you pick up his his carefulness as a uh, interpreter of Paul and the the various nuances he wants to make uh, as he he does so. All right, enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an episode on a most timely and fraught topic: gender and hermeneutics in the Apostle Paul. It's an ideal Christmas dinner topic if the conversation runs dry and you find yourself looking for a diversion from politics. With us today to prepare for those conversations is Dr. Michael Lakey. Michael is lecturer in New Testament at Ripon College, Cudston, and is parish priest in three parishes in South Oxfordshire. Michael is the author of several books, one of which comes out this year entitled The Ritual World of the Apostle of Paul the Apostle, uh, but he's also written Academic Vocation in the Church and Academy today in the book we're discussing Image and Glory of God, one Corinthians eleven, twelve to sixteen, as a case study in Bible, gender, and hermeneutics. Welcome, Michael.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, now, I suppose the, the first thing I want to discuss is is the fact that you're from Oxfordshire or, or you're living in Oxfordshire, yet the subtitle of your book does not employ the Oxford comma. Um, now, was <laughs> that, was this an act of of quiet subversion and nonconformity, or uh, perhaps an attempt to reach a pan-Britannian audience, or what was behind that? Um,
1: I think I I I let's put it down as an oversight. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. Um, all right. On um, to uh, all, other all
1: matters. Of my, all, of, all of my Oxford peers will no doubt judge me. Judge me okay. ruthlessly for missing it
0: out. <laughs> well, that's uh, judge not lest he be judged. Okay. Um, so I want to uh, ask you to walk our listeners through some of uh, your journey into the topic of Paul and gender. And to do so, uh, I, I thought it'd be helpful to hear a bit about your background, um, maybe a bit about your religious background and how that fed into your uh, two thousand ten book Paul and gender um, and and then we could kind of go from there
1: oh right, okay, um well, in terms of background, um, I was raised in the Methodist um, tradition um, and my folks became Pentecostal um, when I was about eight or nine um, I then had a, a lengthy a lengthy furlough um in which in w- in which I, I didn't really participate in, in christian faith and then in my early 20s i returned to active faith um initially as a pentecostal because my family were 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 heavily involved with the large pentecostal church and then um, once i got married um my wife and i settled um in the methodist tradition and then eventually due to a relocation and the fact that um, for a whole series of, you know, historical and cultural reasons, the Methodist Church isn't doing particularly well in the United Kingdom. We ended up going to our local Anglican church, which was a large evangelical church. Um, and and since then, since then, um, I my my theology has moved uh, quite considerably towards the Anglican Catholic tradition. And so that's kind of that's 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 a, a kind of potted summary of, of where I've been. In terms of how religious background maps onto the project, that's actually quite a tricky question because on the one hand, Methodism was a kind of community in which the ministry of ordained and non-ordained women is just not controversial. Um and um but on the other, patterns of interpretation you know, questions of how you get from the Bible to doctrine and from doctrine to the church tradition and from church tradition to church practice. And more importantly, warranting all of those moves. That's been a persistent question for me since my Pentecostal days. It's just something that um, has kind of been with me since returning to active faith in my early 20s. And
0: and so... um what was it that that kind of drew you back into the faith in your twenties? And then, as you did so, how? What was your relationship with Scripture like as you moved from Pentecostalism to Methodism to Anglicanism?
1: Um, oh, that's a that's a, that's a that's that's an interesting one. Um, I mean, I came I I I came back to faith for what were deeply existential reasons. You know, it's it. it, it, it um, um one has a sense of one's own insufficiency you, you know the, the the world is a, a a a lonely um hostile sort of place without without god and um and my part in making it that way was you know increasingly clear to me and so, and so, in in many respects, it was a it, it was a kind of classic, you know, very Protestant. You know, I I, I came to a sense of my own sinfulness and insufficiency, um, very Protestant sort of return to faith. In terms of how Scripture pans out in that, um, um, well, it rather grew. I mean. Um, I I wasn't terribly bookish but on the other hand when we were encouraged in all of the churches I was in to read and the stuff I found myself reading were decent commentaries on scripture and at the time Calvin which was an unusual thing for Pentecostals because there, there aren't really that many reformed <laughs> there aren't many, that many reformed yeah. Pentecostals and I think in part that was because um, I liked the kind of architectonic you know the, the 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 almost architectural structure to calvin's thought um which you get in good theological systems and so i've always um i've always found myself thinking um about the stuff that i read in terms of you know systems and you know how do, how does this work out in terms of x or y or z and um and it was qu- quite- a natural thing to take that and just begin to read scripture systematically and critically
0: mm-hmm. and and so um you know you've so in your move from Pentecostalism to uh, anglicanism now um you, part of the part of that journey was grappling with the evangelical method of reading scripture, even though you 've now moved beyond that so um at the time you wrote this book 2010 was that something you were still in the process of of grappling with or what, where did that sit in the, your journey um it was
1: it 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 was towards the end of that process i think uh um i wouldn't have described it that way at the time i wouldn't have described it that way at the time but i can see when i reread the book that I was thinking in terms in 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 terms um you know one of the things I'm really very interested in and I mentioned several times in chapter six of the book is reading scripture in the content in in the context of the communion of saints the 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 Christian community in its widest possible expression um and particularly in relation to interacting with creedal expressions as a manifestation of those sorts of interpretative impulses um i don't think that that's necessarily a non-evangelical thing because people like you know thomas odin you know in his 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 paleo orthodoxy project was in many respects a similar kind of thing trying to read trying to read scripture as a small c catholic who happens to be in Thomas Odin's case, I believe he was a Methodist evangelical,
0: wasn't he? Hmm. That, that sounds about right yeah yeah and so
1: <laughs> and so it, so, in sen- so in that sense so in that sense the sort of engagement that I wanted to do with the church fathers, with the philosophical tradition, with the medievals um, which doesn't really get foregrounded in the book was part of the reading that I was that I was doing in the background
0: Yeah. So, um, I don't know if this is simplifying it too much, but uh, I suppose a difference with Odin would be that, whereas Odin is saying, hey, the early church fathers have so much to offer, look at all this amazing stuff, You're, you're sitting there saying, hang on a second, evangelicals, of which he... Is was one um, are saying we start with scripture. So how do you get from we start with scripture to look at how great it is to read with the church fathers? Is that the kind of thing you were grappling with?
1: Um, yeah, I mean the, the 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 issue for the issue for me was um, the issue for me was that um, the reading approaches that you get in the pre modern period are just that bit more varied. Um they're often quite interesting um, for, the, for that sort of reason. Um, but they're also um they're also shaped by slightly different impulses. Um and the illustration I sometimes use with my the illustration I sometimes use with my students is the illustration of um of putting a putting a, a boat or a ship at anchor. You know and, and and um and the and if you if you make the anchor very short, if you make the chain to the anchor very short and the tide rises, then you get pulled underwater. If you make the chain too long and the tide goes out, then your boat picks up momentum and you end up pulling it to pieces you know there's a there's a kind of interpretative wisdom that's at play that's that's about what what all christian traditions do in different ways which is seeing individual statements in scripture in the context of the analogy of faith Um, and um, and less as the product of a particular set of interpretative methods or dispositions that it's it's fundamentally a, a constructive theological project. Um, in terms of um, the period when I was writing *Image and Glory of God*, the constructive part of the project was was still was still forming. I think.
0: They're yeah, still I think I think I think that's apparent in the book. Not not that it's ill-formed. It's just you, you kind of get to it toward the end of the book. And it's it felt like suggestions toward a constructive proposal, and 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 so I'll be interested to hear you know where you've taken that. But I, but I, I want to jump into um, the some of the claims in the book one of your more controversial claims, and then I'm hoping we could move out from there to consider some of the the larger hermeneutical questions. So a key plank in your book is that 1 Corinthians 11, and for our listeners, that's the the famous uh, headship and head covering passage. It's probably what it's most known for. Uh, we see Paul articulating a gendered cosmology, and that term cosmology is really important, in which women are, quote, metaphysically subordinate to men. So in other words, he's, he's not just making an a cultural argument that... Um, women need head coverings because otherwise it's offensive and or people get the wrong idea in our culture. Um, but instead, women need to physically mark their ontologically subordinate status on their heads in order to protect male honor and privilege and status. So w- what is it um, in the text that makes you convinced that Paul's not just making a kind of cultural argument, a contextually limited argument?
1: Um Ooh. um can I go back to the beginning of that yeah. of, of that, that that question and sure, try and, try, and, that. <laughs> try and take it kind of stage by stage yeah. um, um, if by planck um the um you you you're meaning major claim then absolutely i would i would agree that that um, that that's a that's a major claim that i'm that, that I'm making about paul's beliefs about the words that he writes of course i'd want to differentiate between a major claim. Advanced as a kind of supposition, and one advanced as the conclusion to a line of reasoning. I mean, it's worth pointing out it it, I, it 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 might not be that methodologically interesting for me to say. Well, I didn't go into the project thinking that that was what Paul was saying, um, but it probably bears saying. Um, uh, it's also worth saying that 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 that. My argument wasn't that it was the best way of reading one Corinthians eleven two to sixteen, that the that the best way of doing that was to posit a metaphysical hierarchy. Rather, I uh, I think my argument touches on the question of frame of reference being important. Um, the the illustration I'd use is if you pop a zebra onto a back, black background, what you see are white stripes. If you pop a zebra onto a white background, what you see are black stripes. Uh, the zebra, in both cases, is the same, and, and 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 that's the that's the problem of frame of reference. And in the case of one Corinthians eleven two to sixteen, I think some of the difficulties over that passage are to do with frame of reference. And the the I mean, the bare bones of the argument goes a little bit like this: um, if if we attend to elements of Paul's worldview model. W- Sufficiently carefully. It's clear that at some level he's an idiosyncratic thinker, but but one whose primary intellectual context is in lies in the interaction between apocalyptic Jewish and also sub elite Greco Roman ideas, both philosophical and broader cultural. And both of these are filtered through one another. And through his commitment to Jesus as messiah and so it's a it's a complicated uh, complicated picture um some of those ideas bear upon how he sees the relationship between God and Christ, the church and the cosmos and that that's and that and that that's a that, that's part of a broader set of metaphysical ideas that he um, uh, that that he either posits or Frames in a way that it's clear that he's that, that it's relatively apparent that he's he's assuming them, and that and that like other thinkers in antiquity, these ideas frame what Paul has to say about human beings. Um, in ways that aren't dissimilar. I mean, he's again he's idiosyncratic. His mode of description is unique, in my view, um, but. He's not alone in the ancient world in framing anthropology in ways um, in which human-level processes, both physical and psychological, are nested in larger social, political, and ultimately cosmological accounts of being and how it works. Um, Now, the difficulty there is that some some of Paul's ways of talking about God, Christ, and the Church and the cosmos, correspond structurally to some of the ways in which he talks about men and women. That's the point about the prepositions. I'm not really hung up on the prepositions as per se, just that it was a striking similarity um, for him to be talking causally about men and women in a way that evokes some of the ways in which he talks causally about the relationship of the cosmos to God through Christ. And of course the difficulty attached to that is that that places Paul's way of discussing male and female in that kind of cosmological cultural framework. It places him methodologically somewhat closer to his contemporaries than it does to anything that we want to do. And and that that's that that for me that for me is that is 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 the real problem um and that um and that when you take into account the fact that two further points that that ancient gender discourses very generally interpret surface details apparent details of biology um and And reproductive phenomenology they interpret those details in as being one of a kind with the sorts of processes that are going on in the larger yeah framework
0: so 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 in other words, there' signs of some larger cosmological phenomenon
1: yes, the thing that yeah. really brought it home to me was peter brown 's wonderful book, the Body and sexuality um in which and and there's 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 a little line which um, I might not be remembering it quite correctly, but he but he describes human bodies as being powered by the same heat and motion that you find in operation in the motion of the stars.
0: Okay. Yeah. You know, so 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 as uh, and I guess to, to sort of um, connect it to what 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 Paul's up to um you, you were suggesting then that in a way we can we can see an interaction between Paul's larger cosmology yes. and his his anthropology yeah um because people the, the the activity of people and the physical makeup of men and women are signs of some larger metaphysical reality cosmological reality yeah
1: yeah, the 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 micro realities participate in macro realities
0: and and this is why um to go back to my earlier question too paul's not making a a culturally contingent argument like hey uh corinth um you know this is our practice here could you just not offend people in corinth like he he, it's it's not that simple
1: i'd 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 want to pass that question slightly I'd want to okay. pass that question slightly Parse away <laughs> because because um I think whether or not my reading of Paul is right, you can definitely make the argument that Paul was interpreting from culture. Um, we just don't be, it's just if I'm right, we're not able to make the case that Paul understood himself to be doing that
0: mm-hmm mm-hmm. Right. So so he, he's he's his argument, of course, is culturally contingent, but he didn't see it that way. And That's then there's. The all, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because and this gets at the whole like culture was nature point as well. Right.
1: Well, well it's 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 the same for every culture. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, part of the reason for this part of the reason for that is is that culture itself isn't isn't a metaphysical vacuum. You know that 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 the part, part of part part of the symbolic order of a culture is a particular way of believing about the world, as the way, in, as 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 the theatre in which the ways in which we act in the world are, are lived out. You know, and and so it's it's very difficult to have an anti metaphysical culture, which might actually be part of the problem that we're in at the moment.
0: Hmm. Good. Well. um And so, so let's, let's park that for a moment. I want to come back to it, but um, I want to talk for a moment as well about uh, the evangelical hermeneutical method, which we've touched on already. And, and I was thinking about a time in, in high school, uh, or when I was in university and I was teaching high school kids, first Corinthians, I have no idea why I decided to take them through the whole book of first Corinthians, but I did. And, um, and I came to this passage, and I remember I can sort of picture the room, and uh, and I, if I had to reconstruct my hermeneutical method for approaching this passage, it was something along the lines of this text is really confusing. I know that in our church we don't practice women covering their heads, and so um, how do I how do I get from this confusing text to our current practice? And that's that's how I then tackled. The First Corinthians. Now, that was now maybe I'm an anomaly in the evangelical world, um, whereas most people start right with Scripture and let it challenge their own practices, no matter what. But um, you you were touching on this process, um, uh, this process of of doing um, exegesis and hermeneutics from from uh, within an evangelical context so what do you observe um, among evangelicals in their kind of hermeneutical method and process um, and what does that process look like
1: oh that's 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 a that's a big question that's um and i don't know if this i don't know if this answers your question but um but i think I, i could say a few things that i think are important about the story that you've just told I think at one level I'd want to say um, we all have our cognitive biases, and they arise simply because we encounter a topic, and we're not only, we're not unmotivated. Um, and I think there's, there's there's good ethnographic evidence, for instance, that the process that you've just described, which is partly reading forward, but also partly reading backwards is something that we all do we we triangulate and um there was a, there was an ethnographer called Sally Gallagher who wrote a, a an absolutely brilliant book a few years ago uh, called um evangelical identity and gendered family life it was an ethnographic study of the way in which evangelicals who believed in headship actually lived and the the fascinating thing about it was that you know that that evangelicals, even headship evangelicals for the most part, live as egalitarian moderns.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think you alluded to that in yeah, the book. <laughs> it's just and and
1: and 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 that's because that's 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 because we we receive the culture in which we live in many respects as a given. It's 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 not so much seen as it's the framework by which we see. And um And... You know that that that's that's a very natural thing for 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 us to do, and it's not really an evangelical thing for us to do. It's a human being thing for us to do. You know that we we we, we, op, we read on the basis of heuristic frameworks.
0: Yeah, and so so it's about kind of maintaining the symbolic status. Um, of this is the authority of the man, yeah. and not necessarily a functional authority. And
1: and this was this was precisely this was precisely Sally Gallagher's point that that actually for the most pa- for the most part. The, uh, the honorific status elements, were they don't correspond in any respect to the idea of, say, patria potestas in antiquity. I mean, there to, to the best of my knowledge, there are no evangelical patriarchs who have patria potestas over their wife and their children. And, you know, you, you know it, it, it just doesn't pan out like that, even in the most conservative Christian households, in my observation. And so, to some degree, we're all engaged in that kind of retrospective hermeneutical joining of the dots, so that the way that we live and the way that we reason can be made kind of Christianly vibrant and symbolically rich. Um, but, I suppose this would be my other observation about your question, would would be, whilst that process is to a certain degree inevitable, there's a flip side to it, is it, it, it has a downside, in that we slip into thinking that that it's an uncomplicated or just a merely technical matter to connect the forms of life that we've got going on at the minute with those of our foundational documents and 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 then what happens is you 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 meet some first year undergraduates who can't quite assimilate the cultural difference between um, between ourselves and antiquity it's, it's almost as if Paul or Jesus was a kind of modern in waiting and and of course and of course the difficulty is that Christianity being an eschatological religion has a has a ready-made set of concepts to appeal to in order that these kind of retrospective claims can be made without sufficient interrogation and that's why I think for me one of the big ideas is methodological disconfirmation you know that 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 actually that actually how on earth do we make the text and its cultural hinterland sufficiently strange that we allow it to be heard above the frames of reference that we bring to it now historically historically actually that kind of that kind of thing has been a big part of evangelical hermeneutics. You know, that's that's what How, how so? My, well that's what by my reading, that's what by my reading doctrines like Sola scriptura are primarily about. They're, they're, a form of, they're a form of methodological disconfirmation that holds in check the capacity of the church to take scripture in ways that scripture won't tolerate. Um and 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 so and so i think I think there i I think there needn't necessarily be a big gap between what you're talking about and some of the more basic and to my mind basically Christian interpretative impulses that evangelicals offer the rest of the church um i think um I think the key thing for me is 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 that question of making strange how do we, how 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 do we how do we incorporate disconfirmation into our ways of reading
0: yeah and it's interesting because one of the things i start out my uh at least my ma old testament module with at wtc is i talk about a, a process for reading scripture and the first stage in that process is defamiliarization and and it's precisely for that reason. It's not because I want to tear apart um, tear a student's relationship with scripture uh, apart, uh, or that I want to instill a sense of um, critical dissatisfaction with with what they've previously thought or, or held. But rather um, that if if we're actually to hear scripture, it has to be truly an other. And and our tendency is going to be to collapse it into our own assumptions about what it should say, and so defamiliarization for me is actually a really key uh, part of that process. You're calling, you're saying disconfirmation. Um yeah. I think that's same same sort of I think, idea. There. I think it is. I think <laughs> it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd probably want to. I'd, I I suspect we probably both put. Uh, uh, you know, um, we probably both filter. Those sorts of conversations through the work of people like Ricoeur, you know and 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 actually sometimes um, um uh, sometimes I will say to people, you know you there's nothing wrong with a naive reading of scripture. you just need to have earned your naivety."
0: Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and, you need to go on it, a hard journey and
1: come back. to Yeah, that. <laughs> that's the point. It's 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 the it's the distanciation or the di- yeah. disconfirmation that yeah. kind of entitles you to come back with fresh eyes. Sure.
0: Um, well, if we could uh, go back to First Corinthians eleven for a moment, um, uh, w- one of the interesting points you make in the book is is that um, both egalitarian evangelicals and complementarian is the traditional term but um, you're calling them hierarchicalists which I which I think is accurate um, but that both of them have have attempted to read first Corinthians 11 in a certain way and and perhaps they've both misread it what are what are some of the ways that you would say that egalitarians and hierarchicalists have misread first Corinthians 11
1: well in essence if you accept the sort of analysis that I was describing in relation to Sally Gallagher's work, which is that um which is that the, the the headship dispute is between two for the most part um egalitarian modern evangelical Christians and it's primarily clustered around certain symbolic offices like leadership in the home or leadership in the family though as you watch the debate develop from the 70s through the 80s and through the 90s that the definition of leadership becomes increasingly convergent in interestingly you know so 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 um
0: he becomes an increasingly benevolent dictator <laughs>
1: this is this is the thing this is the thing um uh, it or, or symbolic as as you, as as you might say um uh, if um, if that is the case, then, then really the, the, the essence of the dispute is between two groups of people who think that men and women are equal in metaphysical status and in being loved by God, with one group thinking that that doesn't preclude the possession of certain symbolic offices of preeminence and another group thinking that it does preclude those sim- offices officers of 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 symbolic mm-hmm. preeminence so
0: so equal in status before god but yet difference in role is yeah, how the debate is is framed in a complementarian that's
1: that's system. exactly that's exactly how it's framed now now one one of the areas one one of the areas that um that I've suggested that I didn't consider in the book but one of the big differences between um, antiquity and modernity I think is has already been mentioned which is the, the legal status of fathers and husbands in antiquity just differs vastly in many respects from the legal status of fathers and husbands in modernity and we don't live like we have patria potestas um, and we don't and and when I treat, when when I treat my wife and my daughters well, I'm not treating them well as a kind of redemptive concession. You know, here I am with patria potestas, but I'm behaving christologically. You know, I don't think about it like that. I'm just behaving like a human being ought to behave, in our cult, as our culture construes it. And so, and so, I, I, it 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 doesn't, um, it doesn't come across as particularly. Redemptive, though of course, in the vast swathe of history, it is, but that would be one area of difference um another area of difference would be we've already mentioned the fact that um that I think that Paul situates gender within a hierarchical metaphysical account of the cosmos and that the hierarchy runs right down the middle of the human gender distinction um and that's something that neither conservative. Um, complementarians nor egalitarians would sign up for.
0: Yeah, do you think a um, an uh, this idea of an equal status yet difference in role is conceivable for within Paul's world? Is that is that kind of distinction possible?
1: Oh, that's that's. <sighs> I'm glad you said within Paul's world because actually at some level it's at, at, at some level as a kind of abstract logical exercise of course you can conceive of situations in which somebody who's functionally you know occupies one role is not um is not metaphysically superior or inferior to to those to those whom whom they exercise that role over it, it of course at that level it can be coherently asserted I probably wouldn't assert it um in relation to paul um in relation to paul i um i think and i don't explicitly say this in the book so i'm thinking about i'm th- I'm, I'm thinking on my feet here um i suspect not i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't go to the stake over that but i, I but but i but i but but i would but i would, su- would suspect i would suspect that for paul because he couches his discussion of honour and shame, he he kind of seeks to embed it in creation accounts and the metaphysical framing. Um, I think for him, he... I think for him, the... um, the idea of equal but different just wouldn't make the same sort of sense. I think... And there are two complicating factors to to that. I think the first is that um, friendships in antiquity were manifestly combinations of all sorts of things, including differences of status from time to time. You know, you could be friends with somebody who was of a higher status than you, um, but that panned out as a slightly different sort of thing than being friends with somebody who was your peer um and i think that's a one thing that relationships re- relationships and status were much more complicatedly negotiated in antiquity i think as well it's almost impossible to have a conversation about equal but different in any kind of western modern context and not hear echoes of, you know, Jim yeah. Crow. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know,
1: yeah. It, I it, mean, well, and, and this well, is this is, of course, mm-hmm. how that sort of how how mm-hmm. those sorts of statements are received.
0: Yeah, and 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 I guess maybe one. I'm just thinking out loud here, but with with Paul's description of slave master relationships, um, he doesn't, to my knowledge, ground that in. In the same cosmology uh, that he does in uh, male-female relationships, and then he sees within the ecclesia slave master, you know, presumably calling each other brother and sister, and so that might be another case where there is a, a difference in. I think so status I, and role yeah
1: I, I think i think so and 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 actually that would be a really interesting point of comparison between say mm-hmm. paul and aristotle in book one of politics mm-hmm. you know because the whole yeah, point in, exactly you know you yeah. know in in the whole point in um yeah.
0: people are in, made inferior for a reason yeah, and, yeah yeah
1: why why are barbarians suited for slavery if you're aristotle well it's because they live they, they live without status they're you know they, they're, they're an entire nation of slaves um and, and, and Paul never makes that sort of statement about the Gentiles, to the best of my knowledge,
0: you know. Um, I, w- I want to just switch gears for a moment and see if you're up for a speed round. This is when I, I ask desk. you. <laughs> 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 I, so I, I ask a question and then you get uh, about uh, five seconds to answer. All right. Um, and uh, all right. So here we go. What do you consider to be the most important book in biblical studies in the last fifty years?
1: Fifty years, um, <sighs> Paul and the Gift by John Barclay. I love that book. I think right. he's you, absolutely
0: fabulous. That's about the four, you're about the fourth person to say that. Yeah, that's um, groundbreaking. Yeah. What about the most significant theology?
1: Most significant theology. Oh, um, oh, that's so tricky. Um, in Anglican theology I think one of the most uh, clever theologians that I've read is the uh, is the theologian Sarah Coakley.
0: Oh yeah okay
1: I think she I think she is an outstanding scholar I don't always appreciate everything that she writes but uh, mm-hmm. but but I just think she's I just think she is superlative
0: Okay do you think there's uh, extraterrestrial life out there in the universe uh, possibly. Okay. Ooh, ooh. Uh, you need to commit.
1: Yeah. Go on. Why not? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, what was? Uh, what do you consider the the number one challenge when writing a book?
1: Um, discipline. Discipline. Okay. Write little and often, and you'll okay. get the job done.
0: And is that what you tend to do?
1: Uh, no, I'm a last-minuteer. And so, okay. I, so I aspire to be other than i am
0: uh, how do you push how do you push through writer's block
1: um keep writing write <laughs> write nonsense if you have to and edit <laughs>
0: uh, what, what's the what's the uh, kind of nonsense uh, latin lorem yeah, some, that. yeah yes, so yes, you yes, could just write yeah, that yeah all just right. edit that <laughs> all right um all right here's a joke um actually, yeah What's gray and lives behind a rock? No idea. You've talked about this already, actually, in our interview. Oh, my. Well, you didn't talk about it in this form. So it's a melted zebra.
1: Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
0: All right. Knock, knock. Who's there? No one.
1: No one who? Very good. <laughs>
0: What's what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die?
1: Oh my. Um The idea that um the the idea that we can easily and without any sort of complication or caveat just move seamlessly between something being on the page to turning it into an ecclesiastical or political proposal
0: okay you know texts
1: require interpretation
0: who's one of your childhood heroes
1: um i wanted to be doctor who when i was growing up
0: (laughs) um alas (laughs) how did that um, (laughs) turn out (laughs) (laughs) not well (laughs) okay Uh, who's one of your scholarly heroes current scholarly heroes current scholarly heroes
1: Um, I well I've already mentioned John Barclay so I can't mention him again Um, I um, Lou Martin Lou Martin Um, I think he overstates the case for Apocalyptic far too much but I just think he's such a vivid writer And, and I suppose the other one um uh i i really like reading um uh marion jean-luc marion i think he's i think he's i I, um his his little book um uh prolegomen at a charity which is basically a kind of phenomenological reflection on um one corinthians 13 but filtering you know an entire an entire philosophical th- tradition through that, um, I just think it's a remarkable book.
0: Okay, good recommendation. Uh, what's the most unusual thing you've ever eaten?
1: Um, ooh, uh, fufu:
0: I have no idea what that is: it's
1: a It's a Ghanaian dish. Well, it's west okay. african cuz you can get it oh, in nigeria know, th- as well there's a yeah
0: wait, wait i'm thinking isn't there like fufu powder or um yeah. flour yeah. i mean it's yeah. it's
1: it's um semolina
0: yeah. and plantain yeah um
1: put into a great big pestle and then you get something like a 5 foot mortar and you whack it and pound it <laughs> and if you're driving through if you're driving through accra you can and you're driving past a restaurant you can hear them whacking this this (laughs) stuff and then they serve it in they serve it in bowls with 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 all kinds of soup and things like that and it's it it really is it's like a it's it's like a a large gelatinous dumpling it's very tasty
0: (laughs) um okay Uh, what's the worst place you could get stuck um
1: oh (laughs) In a public toilet. <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
0: Alright. And um Alright, so here I'm gonna end on a tricky note. Alright, you can have a maths or a vocab question next. So you get to pick your poison.
1: Um vocab, because my first my, my first degree was in theology and maths, and if I don't get the maths question right, it's gonna uh, be excruciating. All right. So vocab okay. <laughs> All right.
0: Um the vocab word is afflatus. Athletes. Afflatus, a f f l
1: a t u s. No, oh, it's gone.
0: Okay, <laughs> a strong creative impulse, divine ah. inspiration. I didn't know that word. <laughs> 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 all right, all right. Let's go back to let's go back to the book now. Um, and I realize our time's running short, so maybe we'll just move a little quicker. Um, I did want to talk about uh, how egalitarians and complementarians read Genesis one and two differently. Um, and And this is obviously likely to due to efforts to anchor a particular reading of gender and creation, so in a way um, it, it, they each read it differently in the same way that for precisely the reasons that Paul did because there's this sense that anchoring in creation makes it permanent and and uh, forever binding um so egalitarians are going to highlight the ways that male, female are equal and complementarians want to argue that male authority and headship precedes the fall. Um, who do you think has the better reading of Genesis one and two?
1: Oh, that's, um, that's such a tricky question because I think, um, because I think actually the, the distinctions that you get between Egalitarians and complementarians at the level of their reading of uh, creation um are really quite slight and quite subtle. I mean it's it 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 at one level it's kind of like the distinction between infralapsarian and super, superlapsarian Calvinists. I mean it's 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 a very niche kind of it's a very niche kind of um kind of disagreement. And um and I suppose I suppose for me, the key question the key question is um or rather the key issue in that in that debate is um is patriarchy is, is there a kind of pristine patriarchy um or not is it a function is it a function of the fall and I would say that um uh, I would say that in regard to their reading of paul which is which, which is where I, where I would feel most competent to comment, I think it's interesting that Paul does not on this issue venture into genesis three
0: right right yeah hmm. and
1: so- and and of course that that has that 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 does some interesting things with paul because of course because of course at one level in one Corinthians eleven Paul doesn't venture into Genesis three in is just in you know verse 7 it's an allusion in um to uh, genesis 1 26 to 28 verses 8 and 9 are an allusion to genesis 2 but there's no reference to genesis 3 um and and of course that works out in 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 one way in relation to 1 corinthians 11 but actually there's a really interesting there's a really interesting um counterside to that In 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul's comparing in the midst of an Adam Christ comparison, um, he talks about Adam being from the earth's dust and Christ being from heaven. Well, of course, his description of Adam there is not from Genesis chapter 3 either. And of course, one of the one of the most interesting things to to that 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 provokes it, one of the most interesting questions I think that arises from that is. Is the question of whether, for Paul, a pristine creation is necessarily a creation that is approaching its telos?
0: Hmm. Yeah, know, I guess it, this gets at another question I had related to that, which is whether um, Paul sees the telos, how, how he sees the relationship between the the beginning of creation and where it's headed and if he sees a distinction there
1: um that would be my that would be my view that would be my view that that um in fact that's one of the things that I've argued in the metaphysical section of the next book which is which which, which is that um which is that paul and i don't think he's alone among new testament writers is that paul understands um eschatological recapitulation to involve cosmological promotion
0: so so if that's the case then how how can it be that he's anchoring something in the the first creation if it's already being unhinged from that original anchoring and moving somewhere else how is that anchoring at all binding um well I or am think, I getting that wrong
1: <laughs> no 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 i mean it, it's a very important question it's a very important question and um and um I can tell you how i, I can tell you how I address that in the area of um of jew and Gentile and um and male and female which is that which, which which is that um paul gets quite exercised in several places, about the possibility of Gentiles being included, because there's no question, even among Paul's opponents, of them being excluded, um, of Gentiles being included by becoming Jews. You know, Paul, Paul does not think that the, the inclusion of Gentiles queer, uh, is, is, is in, including them as Jews. You know, they're, they're included queer Gentile um and the, there's a similar sort of thing that i think goes there's a similar sort of thing that i think goes on in um in some of his his, his gender materials that that um that part of his anxiety is part of his anxiety about this particular issue isn't just about the kind of practicalities of how to live in an honorific culture, or indeed how to perform the metaphysical hierarchies of the, of, of, of pristine creation or fallen creation or whatever, um, it's also it's it. He's also got one eye on the potential on on the potential problem of. It's a semiotic problem to say that the voice of God can reach all of creation only by abolishing certain bits of it.
0: Hmm. Well, you have to say that again for me.
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a semiotic problem to say that the voice of God reaches all of creation, the depths of every hierarchy, only by the abolition of the hierarchy, hierarchy. You know, and that isn't what Paul does with Gentiles. They're included as Gentiles, and so and so in um, and it isn't incidentally, it isn't what he does with slaves. You know that, that 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 actually that that actually um his 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 argument in relation to slave slavery seems to traverse a similar sort of uh, similar sort of logic um and so in that sense um so in that sense i think I think paul is navigating a set of problems which is how do you sig- how do you signify the transcendence of the eschatological state in a world in which, som- at somatically at least, people are still framed by a new age that has at best been only begun in the resurrection of one man.
0: And, and in relation to uh, an earlier pristine creation. So you have three yeah, reference points. Absolutely. And, and so...
1: <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a complicated problem
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, um well let's uh, the other thing i, I want to make sure we touch on is is the uh the trinity question which we really haven't which is a big part of your book um and, and we haven't really dealt with um so of course there's a there's a whole debate within evangelicalism about uh the relationship between the the trinity and male-female relationships. Um, And one of the things you say in your book is, quote, the gender and Trinity argument, and I assume that means within evangelicalism, is internally, indeed, basically incoherent. Um, And first of all, how is this so? Um, And how have evangelicals either leveraged or appealed to the doctrine of the Trinity in debates about male authority?
1: um well i think i i don't i honestly don't think that evangelicals wanted or intended to be arguing about the trinity um i mean if you were to make a list of things that evangelicals agree upon you know the trinity would be quite high on that list um and um and and, and i think the reason it ended up that way is because of a particular sort of interpretative politics, which is, that, which is that if you and I are having a debate, um, if you and I are having a debate rather than a kind of genial conversation, um, then, um, and especially if we have a pastoral concern for third parties who are either privy to or onlooking that debate, um, then we're going to want a decisive conclusion we're going to want a decisive conclusion and when you get something which is when you get something which it which has proved itself to be exegetically indeterminate um when you get something by which i mean you know people just don't find the exegetical arguments on one side or the other decisive and um and when you then drill down into that and the philological debate simply proliferates which it did on a number of fronts, um, arguing fr- about the sense of Kefale or authenteo or any number of other any number of other things. Um, then, then how do you how do you settle the debate in such a way that it um, that it is settled with a view to the good order and peace and above all. Kind of soteriological health of the church, and so i think i think I think in both cases in both sides um have a have a vision of the good that they're pursuing and find the indeterminacy of the exegetical and philological debates frustrating and the 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 rhetorical political move that most people would do in that instance is to find agreed territory that is more serious and nest the debate that we're having in that.
0: And so, and so, so that agreed territory in this circumstance supposedly was the Trinity. And then that two things. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, it's two things. It's two things because, because for the most part, you know, evangelical complementarians raise the question of the authority of scripture. So they raise the question of the authority of scripture. Um, And evangelical um, uh, egalitarians have repeatedly returned to this question of subordinationism. Um, And um, and actually actually there's an additional complicating factor in the rhetorical politics to do with that, which is that um, the distinctive development of post-fundamentalist evangelicalism in the World War II period and particularly the repeated, kind of iterated crises that it's gone through over the question of whether cultural engagement implies revisionism um, has meant that, the, that there are conservative and revisionist wings in the movement. And actually, that plays into the rhetorical politics in really quite an, uh, a difficult way, because imagine you've... Um, think about it this way. I mean, you've been told for years that yours is the tradition that's the revisionist tradition. How delighted are you going to be that there's a kind of ironic reversal?
0: Yeah, so so in have, other words, now... Um... The yeah. supposedly revisionist tradition can say, "Hey, we're holding on to an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity yeah. in the face of." Um, and, and not all of our listeners are familiar with this, but but there has been posited by some complementarians a uh, a, a functional subordination within the Trinity of the Son to the Father. Well,
1: that's precisely what they're arguing. That's preci- That's precisely what they're arguing, and um, now. Now, i think i think as a as a her- as a rhetorical political device i think that is unfortunate and it's unfortunate when it's done in relation to the doctrine of scripture it's unfortunate when it's done in relation to the doctrine of the trinity and actually when you look at some of the examples that are routinely appealed to like chrysostom's 26th homily on 1 corinthians you know the interesting thing about that is that he's very keen to keep discussions of intra trinitarian relationships and discussions of male female relationships at least however analogous or otherwise they might be he's very keen to keep them formally separate yeah. he's not rushing to combine them
0: and, and that's and, and that's where the problem lies for this Text and and if listeners are wondering why we're talking about the Trinity, that's because in First Corinthians eleven three it says, "Now I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God." So it seems to mix together trinitarian relationships and gender relationships. And so Chrysostom's point, if I remember from what you talked about, is that. Even if Paul is making some kind of analogy, it's not an exact analogy. And so you can't say that if Paul says that the man has authority and um, power over his wife, that means that... God the Father has authority and power over the Son, so it, it, the, he he wants to complicate that analogy and say you just can't move that way between those two. Whatever yeah. Paul means, and we don't really know exactly. Yeah,
1: that's that's precisely that's precisely what he does. His 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 point is rather than rushing to assume either that we begin with we begin with the human pairing and kind of abstract upwards or we we begin with the divine pairing and abstract downwards, you know, Chrysostom's point is, Chrysostom's point is you can't do that.
0: Right. So he would be saying, you can't, you you shouldn't even be having this discussion Uh, at least, at least from, from the, the point of view of gender relations. If you want to talk about inter-Trinitarian relationships, do it elsewhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, and I'd probably also want to add to that, 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 um, that that intertrinitarian relationships are astonishingly complicated things to think through when the moment you the the moment you start you factor in humanity and the incarnation
0: mm-hmm. and 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 that's one of the things you point out in the book is that the bulk of cases let's say for um, subordinationism, even functional subordinationism, which is a fancy way of trying to get around essential subordinationism, um, that they they typically work from the um, the economic Trinity, and so so they're they're working from you know the action the activity of God in salvation, or the 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 Son in His humanity, or something like that, um, and. and and trying to then work backward into the imminent trinity, God in God's self, uh, which is another very complicated thing to do and one that we should tread carefully around. Yes. Um, uh, so, as we just get toward the end here, I know you have to to leave in a moment. Um, we A quick word on how you understand kafale, uh, because, of course, that's a big issue in this text. Um, what, what's your quick soundbite on that um uh, which, which is translated head in uh, yeah the, the soundbite
1: soundbite sound on that um uh well i explicitly tried to read the text in a way that didn't presume a decisive answer to the philological question because i concluded chapter two effectively saying this this is kind of run this has run into the ground um um I think um I think the 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 issue that is at stake is not the question of whether head as a metaphor when applied to human beings could or could not imply source, preeminence or origin.
0: hmm Which are the options. Th- yep.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean I actually happen to think that Perryman is probably right that it's, it's more likely to be preeminence than source because I think there's such a dearth and an absence of, of of good evidence for for, for source in, in in comparative literature. Um, the, the the question for me isn't isn't whether the question for me isn't whether the metaphor um, uh, could could me, could mean source original preeminence. The question is whether is whether in the context of a passage like 1 Corinthians 2, 11, 2 to 16, the term implies the absence of authority or precedence of honour in other parts of the passage. You know, and so in so in so in a sense so in a sense, i I'd, I'd want to say it would be it would be very 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 devastating to my argument, if somebody were to come along and find a kind of missing text in Herodotus or something like that, you know, where he uses the word "kefale" to refer to the to the word source and not or, source and not authority. You know, because because in that sense, because in that sense, you could then make a cogent claim that the metaphor in eleven three, which is primarily an embodied metaphor, that the metaphor in eleven three really did genuinely counteract some of the hierarchical stuff in verses seven
0: to ten. Sure, and 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 I think one of the things you said in the book is that even um, whether it's origin, source, or author- or authority, um, it, it's however you translate it, it's a non-reciprocal relationship. So that the man has a relationship to the wife or the the husband to the wife that the wife doesn't to the husband. And so, um, and and which also plays into the idea that he's the image of God, image and glory of God. And she has a non-reciprocal relationship there as well. She's the glory of man. Um, and not even described as the image of God, and and so so there there are some real real challenges, and this this gets back to the point of of you know Paul uh, uh, of, cha- of problematizing the idea that Paul is making an argument that we can render very contingent, um, be, uh, because he's anchoring it so firmly in all the categories of cosmology that um, yeah
1: yeah yeah I mean who wants to I mean, this is the problem. This is the problem, because the, 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 the kephale sequence is, with the exception of the fact that Paul bundles up Christ and man into the doxa, it, you know. Um, uh, so, so in the, in the kephale sequence you have God, Christ, man, woman. In the doxa sequence you have woman, the glory of man, man, the glory of God. And so presumably Christ is either bundled up into man or bundled up into God. Or bundled up into both, but either way, but but either way, those two those two movements are are not unrelated, and we might and 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 we might want to get rid of the idea of headship. But it becomes immensely theom- theologically problematic to start thinking about well, how are we going to how are we going to interpretative, interpretatively excise all of the parts of paul where he describes christ as the glory of god you know i mean the 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 text fits together um and the imagery of the text fits together in a way which in 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 which it isn't settled by the inter- by, by philological investigation of a single word it's a bigger problem than that
0: yeah so ap- after um you know, toward the end of your book after doing this this kind of Um, demolition job on attempts by evangelical complementarians and egalitarians to to rescue 1 Corinthians 11 from uh, its deeply problematic implications. You make your own proposal for how to read these texts productively Um, and, and could you just give one or two highlights from what that constructive proposal entails?
1: Um. Well I think the first thing and um and I think at the beginning of the interview we talked about how um this was at least in part a tentative proposal um because um theologically I was I I I I think things were on the move um but but for me the issue for me the issue bo- um, boils down to the question of is our interpretative activity in relation to Scripture arbitrary or is it non-arbitrary? And if it's arbitrary, then Scripture becomes essentially what, what John Locke called a wax nose, you know, which goes back to the days of dueling where you, you get these prosthet- prosthetic wax noses for people who'd been injured. And, and on hot days, they would melt and you, your nose would, could be whatever shape you wanted it. <laughs> and um and, and and you know it seems to me that one of the basic impulses that i think all christian traditions to a greater or lesser degree want to do is to argue that the faith is is one of the givens albeit one that we have a critical and constructive relationship with um and therefore it's 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 not infinitely malleable and it's not to be made subject to our own interpretative will to power. And so for me, part of that challenge is, is then the question of um, how, how then do you how then do you, beginning with scripture, iterate outwards so that you arrive somewhere that you think is, is faithful to the kind of theological moves that paul was making even if those theological moves can't be ultimately replicated identically and so for me one of the essays that i found helpful was an essay uh, by umberto eco called um, uh, on the possibility of an edenic language and it, it was really a thought experiment and what he, what what he, what he, posited was a very simple yes-no language um, and, and, then, and then put that language through the storyline of the, the opening three chapters of Genesis and then watched how complications in the story force our language to grow in order that we can kind of proliferate outwards and describe the thing that 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 is bigger than the language that we've got to describe it um, and so um and i thought that was an interesting i, I thought that was an, in, an interesting essay and it, it it rather put into my mind the idea that that actually a lot of the basic mysteries of christian faith and i'm using the term mystery in in the in the kind of catholic and orthodox sense of a, a symbolon, um the um Um, something which is a given, which is one of the perennial things that we come back to that's ultimately generative of all that we do and say and think as Christians, that, that some of the primary mysteries of the faith are paradoxically expressed. You know, we don't really have an adequate language to be able to frame our language about God well, and actually if we did have that language the kind of god that we would frame would quite frankly not be really that big <laughs> um and so there's, there's a sense in which if the kind of things that christians say about their god are, are true then that 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 automatically bears on the sorts of things that we think that we're doing when we're constructing a language and um and and actually some of the things like the primary symbols of the faith because of their paradoxical and 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 just infinitely challenging nature they cause our capacity to theologically generate and construct to 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 grow but only grow well if they're kind of iterative processes of of expansion and return, and expansion and return. And so and so I, I applied that in 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 to my reading of 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 Paul and said, well, let's read it in several passes and see what happens. And by the third or fourth pass, um by the third or fourth pass, I was thinking that isn't it interesting how some of paul's statements about mystery and epistemology you know how how um how those interact really quite fruitfully with some of the problematic statements and I'm using problematic, not in the ideological campus sense that it's used, but but just genuinely difficult statements that he makes about cosmology and gender. Um and um and I kind of ended up somewhere that looks a bit like a kind of sac critique um approach to Paul, which is which is that we're constrained um that the purpose of scripture is to constrain us in terms of the theological subject matter to which Scripture points, you know, I think that's what I think that's what people like Hilary and Augustine are doing with Scripture and the Trinity. Um, and I think what that what that enables us to do is back to my illustration of the boat. It al- it allows us to anchor our theological proposals in Scripture, but just as the tide comes in, let the chain out a little bit, so that we can see how we get from here to be over time.
0: Yeah, without drowning.
1: Yeah, without drowning. We don't want we don't want the ship to be pulled underwater. You know, we could we could win that debate, but we we're we we're, we're not in a submarine. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, Michael, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to uh, reflect thoughtfully with me and with our listeners about this subject. And um, we'll also be keeping a lookout for your new book, "The Ritual World of Paul the Apostle," which uh, is that come out this year, or is that next year, or how's it, that? It should be out in December. Okay, okay, fantastic. Um, so, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript.
1: Thank you so much. It's been it's been wonderful.